Welcome to Elevate Intel. This is Vijay here. We have a special weekend edition. The weekend edition is an unscripted conversation between myself and Cedric Layden, our co-host. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is actually a plethora of topics ranging from state of democracy in the country today and in the world, actually, all the way down to digital privacy, supply chain attacks. We, we are thinking about quite a few conversation topics that Cedric and I have been discussing the past couple of days. So without any further ado, you all know Cedric Layden. You probably have seen him on CNN every other day, but do you really know everything about Cedric? Cedric, <laughs> welcome to the show. And do you want to give us a quick introduction sure, about yourself? It's always great to do this with you and, uh, you know, and hopefully bring our listeners along on a journey that is, uh, I think, really important as we navigate the different aspects of technology in our lives today, and as well as the political aspects, which also play a major part in all of this. So my background, I was a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer for 26 years, and I retired as a colonel uh, while serving in various uh, positions. My last assignment was at the National National Security Agency as the Deputy Director of Training for the NSA. In other assignments that I've had, I've been on the Joint Staff, I've been posted to the Far East, I've been posted to Europe, I witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, that was one of those seminal moments when you know that you're a part of history and you see it unfolding in front of you. You don't know how it's going to end, uh, but you do know that you're part of something that's way bigger than yourself. Uh, so my background is in uh, political science, international relations, and national security affairs. And as you mentioned, of course, I'm a military analyst for CNN. And uh, what we're doing here, I think, is bringing a lot of the things that we, you and I, VJ, deal with on a daily basis uh, into the mainstream so that people can understand uh, what we're doing and, uh, and also how important it is uh, for our society at large. Thank you, Cedric. You're absolutely right. You and I actually, on a daily basis, we, we, we sync up on so many different topics and it becomes rather difficult to discern where do you really want to focus your energy. So what we do in this show is take up the key topics that's relevant to the average user like you and I, Cedric, and how do we actually navigate some of these? But at the same time, we also unpack some of the more complex topic, and hence reason why, how do we elevate your intelligence? And that's basically how we came up with the name for our podcast, Elevate Intel. How do we elevate our day-to-day -day intelligence? That way we can navigate the information overload, the information warfare that everyone is being subjected to these days. And I think your I characterization of the DJ information warfare is absolutely right because you're dealing with a world in which, uh, you know, while facts do matter and they continue to matter, a lot of people are acting as if they don't matter and they're spewing things uh, that are untrue. They are telling people stories that are either not grounded in fact or they are grounded in partial facts. And so one of our jobs here, I think, is to uh, give a, a cogent analysis, unbiased analysis on what is actually happening around the world today. So one of the things that I thought we could actually 
um, talk about uh, is, uh, you know, how we actually are dealing with certain things that are in the news right now. And one of the big things right now is the state of democracy in the world. And uh, when you look at how we are dealing with the fallout from here in the United States with uh, the Ukrainian presidential call, the call that President Trump in the United States had with the Ukrainian President Zelensky and the transcript of that call. Uh, that uh, you know really points to the larger question of what is the state of democracy in the world today? And when you look at the statistics of that, Vijay, what you're seeing is a, a situation in the world where uh, democracy is actually in retreat. Uh, you look at what is happening uh, not only in the United States, uh, but in the United Kingdom. You have both countries have populist uh, rulers that are generally uh, looking to overturn norms. They're looking to change the way we uh, we interact with government. Uh, we, they're looking at, uh, in some ways, undermining current and existing institutions of government. And that trend is not just confined to those two countries, but it's something that you see all over the world in places as diverse as uh, Russia. Uh, China, of course, has never had democracy, really. Uh, but uh, control over people in that country is, is very much on the agenda of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And you see, of course, what's happening in Hong Kong as a direct result of, of that particular uh, situation. And then what you have is a the case where, you know, in Ukraine uh, specifically, you're dealing with a situation where the the government there, uh, newly installed government of uh, President Zelensky, who, by the way, uh, was a comedian who played a president, now he gets to actually play that role for real on the domestic and on the global stage, uh, where he is, has to interact with all kinds of people to include, of course, other world leaders. And uh, what, we're, what we're seeing here is really the way in which uh, we're bringing so many different uh, things to uh, to bear, but the uh, that phone call uh, kind of typifies a situation where a, a, a an existing incumbent world ruler uh, like President Trump is trying to extract a, a kind of promise uh, from uh, the Ukrainian leader who is new in his position, who is trying to navigate uh, what's real and uh, what's false. Uh, as he establishes himself in his in his new role, and uh, when you look at um, what uh, what has happened there, it, this is the type of thing that not only concerns governments, but it also concerns private companies that can easily get wrapped up in that kind of uh, of dialogue and uh, you know that kind of political intrigue. And the thing that I'm thinking about here, VJ, is CrowdStrike. Uh, CrowdStrike is cyber security company uh, founded by a, a person who is an, a Russian-American born in Moscow, uh, but absolutely a U.S. citizen. Uh, CrowdStrike was the company that uh, helped unpack uh, what happened to the Democratic National Committee in the 2016 election when their servers had been hacked. And uh, they were the ones, along with the FBI, that helped determine uh, that the source of the attacks was actually from Russia. So what uh, you know, when you look at this from your private sector standpoint, what kinds of things do you see, what kinds of dangers do you see when it comes to a company like CrowdStrike being drawn into a political mess like this one? Great uh, point.
end there, Cedric, I think your your overview around the state of democracy globally, I think we are at a nexus point between the technology, democracy, and we're kind of in this digital democracy globally. And and as a way of introduction, you know, my background, Cedric, I have about 25 plus years in enterprise technology, cybersecurity, risk management. And as you know, we share quite a bit of um, board leadership together too. Uh, my focus has been always building the right type of technology solutions that are resilient and I've done this in large Fortune 50 companies. One of the characteristics observation that I'm increasingly beginning to uh, self-reflect upon is the, the gap between the public sector, private sector, the problems and the challenges in the risk area that the public sector faces is sort of overlapping you know, that's, with yeah, the that's private sector. At the end of point, you know, because yeah. What I've noticed, uh, you know, being a person who's grown up within uh, the intelligence community is that a lot of the challenges that you find in the intelligence community are mirrored and in some cases accentuated in the private sector and uh, now more than ever you need an understanding of how intelligence actually operates even if you are in the private sector i think it's almost essential to corporate survival at this point exactly i mean if you if you really think about this there used to be a time when you would assume that the private sector was at a faster pace of innovation, which I assume is still the case. But I always wanted to ask you this, you know, from an NSA perspective or government intelligence agencies perspective, obviously we're not talking confidential data here, but the, the pace of innovation, we are almost at a level playing field, especially when it comes to cyber age. Is that characterization accurate, Cedric, or do you still see an imbalance in the innovation and how data is handled or data is processed and the visibility of the data is controlled I think between the public, the public sector, and the private Vijay, sector? Uh, is uh, behind the private sector in this regard. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, how uh, the private sector has developed the ability to handle not only volumes of data, uh, but also, uh, you know, just not just the processing of that data, but also the security of that data. I think a lot of the systems that secure data in the private sector are pretty much analogous to the systems that are used within government sectors as well. And in some cases, uh, governments around the world uh, use uh, private sector developed encryption methodologies in order to secure their information. Uh, the the fact that uh, you know technological advancements that used to be held uh, in very classified form uh, within governments themselves, uh, that uh, you know that that knowledge has uh, gone beyond governments and uh, private sector uh, companies are pretty much uh, on a par and in some cases have exceeded the capacities of government to actually uh, protect data and also uh, to uh, you know find themselves in uh, they find themselves now in much more powerful positions uh, than they otherwise did because what they do control is information and information uh, really becomes the key to power whether you're a government or a private sector enterprise exactly i mean this reminds me of uh, 
when I initially, I was one of those CISOs and CSOs said, Rick, when the market did not have a clear definition of what a chief information security officer was all about. I'd been fortunate enough to be in companies like GE, Home Depot, HD Supply, where I had to build a foundational security program carve out the CISO role and then figure out where the CISO role needs to align from a perspective of reporting at the right level and then building the security program. And I had to do this couple of cycles. So building security programs is something that I enjoy doing. But what really interests me at this juncture if in our conversation at the private sector, it's about the technologies and how we protect protect the data that belongs to the customer and the company. But from a public perspective, the public sector perspective, there are policies, regulations, some may call it over-regulations, under-regulations, data protection controls, you know, GDPR, California Privacy Act. But the, the supply chain of the policies, regulations, and the technology tools is such an equation that kind of gets into this elastic mode that is never a finite point of balance. But kind of tracing our way back to your initial question here, Cedric, um, we're talking about Dmitry Alprovich, who happens to be the CTO and the co-founder of CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike, as you mentioned, actually was uh, used by the, the, the Democratic National Committee in order to go ahead and uh, figure out what really happened. Uh, if you all remember the, the 2016 incident and they did do their analysis and they were able to zero in on the fact that Russian operatives actually did interfere. The DNC actually was breached and it was later confirmed by FBI that that was the case. Now, what's interesting here is companies like CrowdStrike are now in the crossfire uh, in an unorthodox presidency. If you really think about this, the, the ease at which the existing presidency crosses between uh, you know, the private sector, the public sector, with without security clearance. On one side, one could argue, hey, this is the, the next stage of social media presidency where individuals, no matter what, can directly engage with the president. But on the other side of the discussion is, is this the right thing to do? I feel like that is a miscalculation. It seems our system is not ready to embrace the next generation of governance, which is basically digital democracy. And what are some of the guidelines for digital democracy? I think that's a compelling topic and that we may have to have a few of us state representatives jump in on this well, topic. I agree, BJ. What I do think you think? That, uh, you know, the state of digital democracy is something that uh, is very important for us to not only understand what it is like right now, but also what it's going to be like in the future. And you're right, you know, the, the kinds of norms, the kinds of institutions that uh, have been built up over the last, you know, 200 plus years 
are uh, institutions that uh, didn't exist uh, or where, where, excuse me, that didn't exist before, uh, you know, basically uh, the age of the Enlightenment. And, uh, you know, when you have um, a, a challenge to systems that are, in terms of human history, relatively new, uh, but an almost existential challenge, uh, it's hard for those institutions uh, to fix themselves, to, in essence, become uh, digital natives uh, from an institutional standpoint. And, you know, when you look at uh, CrowdStrike uh, being mentioned in, uh, you know, the way it, it has been in the transcript of the call between the two presidents, you uh, find that a lot of the information that is being used uh, to talk about CrowdStrike is actually inaccurate. So one of the, I think, one of the fun, uh, foundational issues uh, that we're going to have to deal with is the accuracy of information as it is uh, dispensed, you know, within both political circles, uh, i.e. the public sector, as well as in the private sector. And, uh, you know, when you have uh, the co-founder of uh, CrowdStrike being, uh, you know, kind of a focus of this, uh, it can get personal really, really quickly. And that uh, has its own risks and dangers associated with it. And, and that is definitely something that, uh, that needs to be looked at and institutions need to be uh, changed, modified, modernized in a way uh, that protects the essence of democracy, uh, and but also protects the sanctity of data and information itself. So that's that's I think one of the major challenges that we face in this case. Absolutely, Cedric. You know, this brings up a, an interesting conversation that I recently had with. Um, a board director at a large organization, the question that was raised was, uh, with the emerging cybersecurity marketplace, the political scenarios and the political uh, uh, situations that are unfolding, there is also a bill in the Senate floor right now, if I'm not mistaken, that speaks about a cybersecurity expert being in the board of directors some sort of a cyber executive and this conversation was interesting because the question that was raised by this board director uh, at, from this organization was around what happens if one of us that is one of the board directors is singled out in a conversation or a news media article about a topic very similar to what happened to the cto and the co-founder of uh, crowdstrike that actually is a very interesting topic, Cedric. The reason is you're now dealing with risk management. You're dealing with the personalities, VIP protection programs. There's a whole other dimension that gets unpacked when you get into this type of discussion, especially the PR-related activities. What are the guidelines? What are the governance model one has to follow? This is an uncharted territory, and this is one of the key reasons why I'm specifically focusing on developing a charter around board governance, the cyber board governance initiative, uh, specifically focused to elevate the intelligence of cybersecurity, cyber practices, and how cyber is becoming a bigger platform of governance, both in public yeah, and private yeah, sector. Absolutely. I think that's a key way to modernize corporate governance, because when you see uh, the kinds of risks that are inherent in these, uh, not only in corporate governance itself, but also 
also in the reputational aspects of things, uh, the challenge could be immense. And, you know, failing to establish proper guidelines, both in uh, the private sector as well as from a legal standpoint, uh, that can be uh, that can be a real challenge for companies nowadays. I would agree. Yeah, I meant to say uh, the, the, that particular bill is in Congress right now. Uh, what, that This also kind of connect the dots with the the profound startup market, the institutional investors, the venture capitalists, this is going to have a big impact. Uh, the reasoning here, and one of the points that we would unpack in, in our upcoming episode, Cedric, is the how do you look at a cybersecurity executive? If you think about you know 25 plus years in this space at my side, I've seen well over 45, 46 mergers and acquisitions during my career. And the technology view of a cybersecurity executive is well respected and everybody looks at them that way. But what I have truly appreciated and have grown into is being the business leader, the transformational business leader who can understand the technology, the business challenges, the supply chain of the business, the heartbeat of the business, and take a look at it from a resilient risk management perspective. Now, speaking of risk management perspective, Cedric, I think uh, we're going to segue into the next topic here that you had asked me earlier. Microsoft has released some critical patches. Did you get well, a chance you know, to I've, patch I've it, Cedric? At that. So I understand that uh, there are... Uh, you know some patches that uh, that become important. So Microsoft, and if you use uh, you know iOS for example, um, the uh, you know what impact does this have? Does this have an impact on privacy? Uh, and are these uh, patches going to impact what others see about me, about my data? How does that how does that actually going to work, VJ? Oh yeah, it's a great question, Cedric. So what Microsoft did has they have released what's called as critical patches. Now Microsoft releases patches the second Tuesday of every month. It's called the Patch Tuesday, affectionately. So what happens during these patch cycles is some of them are critical, some of them are important, some of them are just standard uh, system patches. This particular patch that we are talking about actually impacts older Internet Explorer. The modern Internet Explorer that runs on your Windows desktop, the Windows 10 desktop is called Microsoft Edge browser. But the older browsers are still installed at larger enterprises. They may be installed in dormant. It starts with Internet Explorer 9, 10, and 11. And it runs on systems Windows 7, Windows 8.1, and even in some cases, Windows 10. This particular vulnerability it's pretty it's pretty damning what happens is if somebody is able to exploit this a bad actor is able to exploit this uh, they can actually trigger a denial of service condition directly from controlling the device so uh, the, the key point here is Microsoft has a, a well detailed uh, update website one should go in and update it the best way to do this is go into your windows update then go ahead and click update if you haven't already done it but this is a critical patch and most users should be able to install this patch in a very simple couple of clicks and restart the machine speaking of data privacy cedric the second question you were talking about was around ios 13. we also Apple released their new devices. 
um, hopefully we will be picking up our devices soon. But the 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 discussion here is on iOS 13.1. Now, what's interesting about this is Cedric. Apple for the past year, year and a half has been uh, systematically creating privacy awareness within their code base with their offering. There's multiple reasons to it. This could be another topic by itself. Uh, Apple's under quite a bit of pressure, in my opinion, from hardware market. You do find other Chinese manufacturers the, the, who are creating highly competitive products with better hardware design, if I may say so. So the, the element of completeness, the ecosystem that Apple tries to bring to the table is we not only create these tested, highly effective devices, but what really fuels the devices is the software. So there's more value in the software than the hardware. It's probably the, the market trend where Apple is going at this point. But let's talk about 13.1. The biggest impact you're going to see, Cedric, if you have your Facebook application installed, you may see a pop-up in iOS 13, 13.1 version telling you that Facebook is trying to access your Bluetooth or your Wi-Fi uh, connectivity. The reason behind this is your traditional Facebook application has this feature of identifying your location and, using your Bluetooth and, and data. Why is that important to Facebook? It's a great question. So the you know the best way to explain this is Cedric, you are the product for Facebook. More the, the more they know about you, your location, your behavioral analysis in other words you go to your starbucks close to your home versus you go to starbucks away from your home that's a behavior pattern but with this new ios 13 release apple has gotten into the habit of warning users hey this application is silently trying to understand your location the location awareness enables the application to create a profile so if you put together your complete day activity, the activities throughout your day, Cedric, this Bluetooth, to, to put it in a simple perspective, let's say a couple of folks in the house all have Apple devices, they all have Bluetooth enabled, and Facebook application is trying to understand, okay, here is user number one. There is also a user number two because I can sense the Bluetooth connectivity and the Bluetooth signals coming out of both these devices. So there's a proximity approximation. User one and user two is within the same address. That type of information can be used in so many different ways by Facebook. As an example, Facebook is you know, they have released a new dating application and the dating feature. If you think about that, they can very quickly ascertain and include a feature. Your possible date is in the vicinity. So here is how to track that information. But the bigger question is, Cedric, while these may appear as features, what is the level of privacy invasion? That's where Apple is positioning its iOS 13.1 features. The iOS 13 features are all about increased data privacy. Now, if you talk about the behavioral sciences, Google does this, Facebook does this, all large corporations that deal with social media at some level is leveraging you and me as the product. The question is, what are the guidelines and how do you 
navigate these guidelines in a in a control yet productive you say, manner. Vijay, that uh, when you uh, look at us as the product, uh, you know, for a uh, for an entity like Google or like Facebook, uh, are the guidelines are the laws up to date? Uh, can they actually be uh, used to protect consumers, to protect people from uh, un unnecessary data infiltration or data exfiltration? Uh, you know, how much do they um, take the digital exhaust that we talk about that all of us leave behind? Uh, how much do they take that and analyze us and uh, develop things without our knowledge? Uh, is that something that uh, the legal framework has caught up to at this point? Unfortunately, Cedric, we, you know, there is a huge imbalance between the definition of privacy. I mean, we don't have a, a, a constitutional guideline on what privacy is all about, right? So the problem is the technology is spearheading its way here. We are at the point in, in the history where there's a lot more of the digital exhaust and the governance is awfully inadequate. And there are questions around if, uh, if, if you take a look at Europe, the GDPR guidelines is a very positive step. Some may argue some of the features of GDPR, requirements of GDPR is a little overreaching. Recently, there has been some updates in the limitations of how far the GDPR laws apply. For example, does it apply within the EU market? Does that apply uh, in the US market? Specific, I'm, I'm talking about the right to be forgotten. I mean, if you look at the dysfunctional approach to this thinking, Cedric, right to be forgotten holds good within the EU region. But if the same person, let's say, for example, I'm searching for somebody and this somebody has requested right to be forgotten with Google, the moment I land in Heathrow Airport in London and I search this person, I'm not going to see any result. But I fly back to New York and I search this person the next day as an example, I will see the results. So what's stopping me from using a proxy and then doing it from either country. So there's a little bit of a gap between the orchestration of data privacy. This actually goes back to our broader discussion and your topic earlier, Cedric, around how do we create a systematic global privacy practice by both the government, the public sector, and the private sector. And, and you know, you recently spoke at Czech Republic as, uh, on the same topic. Yes, Wasn't that uh, right, in Cedric? fact, uh, this summer I had the privilege of attending uh, the Colors of Ostrava uh, Music Festival, and in particular the Melting Pot Forum, which was there. Uh, it's kind of equivalent to uh, South by Southwest in Austin. Uh, and I was a panelist in uh, four different areas, but one of the areas that we talked about was data privacy and how important that is in the modern uh, in modern world in the cyber age. Uh, and particularly, you know, when you think about the background of the Czech Republic, the Czech Republic, as many of you know, uh, was a communist controlled country from 1948, uh, the end of World War II, until uh, the Velvet Revolution in 1989. And uh, then, of course, it divided itself peacefully, uh, much to their credit, uh, uh, from Slovakia and became the Czech Republic uh, back in, in the early 90s. And so their history 
is one in which when you talk to the people there, you find out very quickly that it deals, they, they deal so much with uh, privacy issues. They deal so much with uh, having experienced uh, within living memory, a state that was all pervasive where the secret police controlled your every move, where your employment and your school choices uh, in terms of higher university education depended on your loyalty to the party, in this case, the communist party. Uh, so the the types of uh, viewpoints that uh, a lot of uh, the Czech audience members had uh, were very, um, very much in tune with the idea of not only protecting data, but also with having features such as the right to be forgotten uh, incorporated in the way in which uh, they ac access uh, the digital landscape. The issue that the Czech Republic is currently facing uh, ties in very uh, interestingly with the idea that uh, we're in the middle of a political transformation. And as we talked about at the beginning, you know, where democracies are basically under siege throughout the world, the Czech Republic is no exception to that. Uh, and just like in its neighbor, uh, Hungary, uh, you have a situation where uh, the current government, uh, uh, Prime Minister Basic, uh, is uh, in essence uh, looking to control so many aspects of of uh, Czech life and a lot of people, especially those who uh, had experienced uh, the Velvet Revolution and uh, uh, the overthrow of communism, a lot of them look at uh, him as being a throwback to the old way of doing things. And many of them don't want that. Uh, of course, others do. And so that becomes the big uh, dividing line between a lot of, uh, lot of people uh, in that country. But uh, the main issues that they have center on uh, the ability to uh, live in freedom, and living in freedom means that you, uh, in essence, use all the benefits of the digital and cyber ages uh, without uh, the risks that are associated with that. And of course, risk mitigation for a private citizen is a bit of a different animal uh, than it is for a large enterprise, but it's still a very important component because if you can be tracked either by authorities or by people who wish you ill, that is still going to be an issue of, of public safety. And uh, the organs of the state, you know, the police uh, outfits, the intelligence outfits, uh, they uh, have a challenge. Uh, you know, are they going to uh, do the government's bidding uh, unquestioningly, or are they going to uh, submit to standards uh, that, uh, in essence, tell them uh, what kinds of data they can use and when they can use that data? So uh, this kind of discussion is a worldwide discussion. And in the Czech Republic, with an audience that was very much engaged, um, they're uh, you know, real concern is that digital privacy is something that they must uh, not only have, but they must be able to ensure it for subsequent generations. And that's that's really a, a major feature in um, in how they uh, they're dealing with this issue. Absolutely, Cedric. That's very fascinating, and and I'm so glad that you're able to participate and and have kind of that melting view between the EU zones and the, the North America zone. Speaking of which, I think one of your earlier questions was around the iOS 13 and especially 
the the digital privacy and the uniqueness of identifying somebody with device location or any one of the attributes that dictate PII, personally identifiable information, if it gets into the wrong hands, nefarious actors, bad actors can actually leverage that information. There's a whole other discussion topic, Cedric, on how the bounty hunters of the modern era are leveraging uh, data from SIM cards, you know, AT&Ts of the world and Sprints of the world, they actually are selling some of your location data to the secondary market and bounty hunters of the world and folks who are going and recovering automobiles, for example, are actively using this data to locate your Absolutely. actual location. Yeah, that's uh, able to do that, you know, and this is bounty hunters, uh, you know, who often operate uh, even without, uh, you know, being uh, being subject to uh, the uh, regulation edge of the law. And, uh, you know, when they have this extra tool, uh, that gets to be a really questionable area and people need to look at it from the standpoint of, okay, uh, you know, do we... Exactly. Kind of going back to the topic of um, the digital government and what the Czech Republic has been doing, uh, the World Economic Forum had a very interesting analysis, and we had spoken about this earlier, Cedric, at a different forum and a different panel. Estonia is a very interesting exercise. It's a research exercise, and I, I like to call it the Silicon Valley of the government, right? It's the Silicon Valley of the digital government, rather. And what's interesting to me is it, they have created a movement. Estonia actually offers 600 e-services to its citizens directly and about 2,500 odd services to businesses directly using a, a very interesting infrastructure model. Now, what's uh, quickly here, if you think about this, in 2000, the government of Estonia declared internet access as a human right. Now think about that for a second. In 2000, they declared well, it. It's, it's a you human know, that's right. it exactly. So you know, you think about this. They're way ahead of most other countries, if not all other countries, when it comes to uh, really using uh, digital capacities, digital capabilities, in order to facilitate governance, to facilitate interaction and uh, that also made them incredibly vulnerable uh, when you look at what happened in 2007. Uh, in 2007, you had a situation, mm -hmm. uh, Estonia has a lot of ethnic Russians that live within its borders. It's a legacy of its time underneath the Soviet Union uh, in part. And uh, one of the things that happened was there was a huge uproar about uh, the movement of a statue uh, that commemorated the sacrifices of of the Red Army soldiers in World War II. Uh, well, the Estonians wanted to move uh, that uh, statue to another location which was less public, and that uh, served as a cause celeb for a lot of the ethnic Russians. Well, Estonia marked really the first instance of a state-sponsored 
cyber attack against a nation state. And uh, what the Russians did, and of course they uh, they were smart. They uh, you know made sure that there was an army of hackers that could be plausibly denied as being part of the Russian state. Uh, but these uh, Russian hackers uh, got into uh, their systems that included uh, you know basically e-government type services. You know everything from driver's licenses to uh, voting, voting, voter registration uh, roles, marriage licenses, all of those kinds of things, and most importantly, banking. Uh, they got into all of those systems and were able to disrupt the, the country for a period of time. Now, the Estonians recovered, and they were able to use that experience uh, that they that they gained from uh, this cyber attack in order to not only strengthen their uh, local systems, uh, but also uh, they served kind of as a role model uh, for other nations who are contemplating the move to e-government. They served as a role model about what to do in terms of securing uh, that uh, you know those kinds of services from uh, you know an unauthorized access and and uh, from an attack. So Estonia. Now is the seat of uh, NATO's uh, cyber uh, warfighting efforts, and uh, cyber simulations happen all the time uh, at the behest of NATO and that their cyber center in Tallinn, in the Estonian capital. And that becomes, uh, you know, another model for uh, for us to look at because uh, you know, as small as Estonia is, it is a vibrant uh, economy uh, that is in large part uh, based its vibrancy is based on their ability to access digital services and to leverage those digital services. And Estonia has basically become one of the most important uh, areas for that. And like you said earlier, Vijay, it is a laboratory. Uh, and, you know, when an entire nation is a laboratory, uh, you know, there are things that can go wrong, obviously, but there's also a heck of a lot that one can learn from that laboratory. Exactly, Cedric. I mean, I, I mentor, as you know, and you do too, at a couple of the uh, enterprise accelerators. These are companies where you know emerging CEOs with products come to the table and I always use Estonia as an example with some of the cohorts when I teach some of these classes what's interesting Cedric as you just mentioned and and this fascinates me since I have I have been tracking Estonia for a while in 1997 about 97 percentage of Estonian schools were online now think about that the early process or the at the time at which things were changing in the global market even in the silicon valley but to bring it in but to visualize a country as a startup and bring in the type of technology that you bring in it's oh, pretty yeah. amazing and by 2002 the government yeah by 2002 cedric the government had built free wi-fi network that pretty much covered the most populated areas and yes it's a small country and as you mentioned earlier it's a very interesting playground and by 2012 94 percent of the country's tax returns were made online and what's interesting cedric the uniqueness about this the transformational thinking that they bring to the table is to grow the digital economy and to attract investments and to connect with new business businesses estonia was the first country to offer something called e-residency it's a transnational digital identity available to anyone interested in establishing uh, a, and administering a location independent business online now the the perspective about this is 
uh, if you think about the the attack that had happened and how they had recovered from this, uh, we got to speak a little bit about the infrastructure. This is this is the fascinating part. E Estonia, as it is called, is actually made possible due to the infrastructure. And instead of developing a central system, as one would think, of managing all this, what they did is they created an open, decentralized system. And after the attack, and from a resiliency perspective, what they did is they introduced blockchain. So they leverage blockchain for trust and authentication and authorization as they continue to evolve this. But this is an excellent example of how to build resiliency in real life using blockchain and still thrive Absolutely, as an That's, yeah, And to use blockchain, uh, you know, a lot of people looking at that uh, you know the federal reserve uh, the central bank in the united states or the de facto central bank in the united states is looking at blockchain technologies just because of their open ledger uh, type architecture so uh, you know as people look at the more esoteric ex aspects of blockchain you know they think of uh, cryptocurrencies like bitcoin and and uh, other cryptocurrencies but blockchain can actually be used for uh, quite some good and you know like you mentioned the uh, the digital identity um, you know it's interesting to me just from a, a quick historical perspective uh, you know this idea of having a digital identity that transcends borders is really the future of, of what we're looking at and you know, the Estonian model is really really good uh, back in the period between World War one and World War two they actually had to develop a, a specialized passport uh, called the Nansen passport uh, named after the Norwegian explorer Fridtjof Nansen uh, that was designed to actually help stateless people, people who all of a sudden had lost citizenship uh, because they were in a place that had uh, you know, once belonged to an empire that had ceased to exist, or they were refugees from that empire and uh, you know, didn't have any other uh, state uh, uh, system that they could uh, be uh, owe their allegiance to. So a lot of refugees from Russia, from Imperial Russia, you know, of course, didn't have Soviet citizenship. They were among those that had that kind of mm -hmm. a, uh, a passport. It's called a Nansen passport. And that kind of, um, you know, ad hoc response to a whole bunch of stateless persons could very well be leveraged to help uh, with something like the Syrian refugee crisis, for example. Uh, it could be something that could be used whenever there's massive international upheaval, and it really is something that uh, you know, international organizations like the UN, I'm sure, are taking a very big, very hard look at uh, at developing these kinds of e-identity uh, systems for uh, you know waves of migration uh, that uh, you know happen for both economic and political reasons. Some of the the models of blockchain deployment, uh, Switzerland, Norway, all of them are beginning to look at blockchain as a decentralized but a trusted way of approaching uh, the fundamentals of digital transformation. Speaking of digital transformation, Cedric, at Cyphorex, which is our advisory firm, uh, 
to, to, to kind of give an introduction to our audience here, uh, Cedric and I are co-founded Cyforex. It's actually an advisory firm. We focus on enterprise technology, risk management. Uh, we focus a lot on national defense, cybersecurity, and we actually work with corporate boards and CIOs, CXOs, and CEOs of the organization in order to look at cybersecurity programs and actually help them navigate digital transformation. A recent engagement that I was part of uh, was a digital transformation initiative for a supply chain company. And we actually helped them design the foundations of what could be the path of digital transformation for such a company. You know, if you look at their enterprise, uh, enterprise ERP system, their product system, managing their PLM lifecycle, that is a product lifecycle management, and how do you basically create an e-commerce structure that is directly in conversation with the warehouses, the factories, and overall demonstrate a shrinkage of waste while at the same time understand the customers directly. You know, contrary to popular belief, dig digital transformation, you know, you could approach it in five ways to Sunday here, Cedric, as you and I have been talking, but the, the, the thought process behind this is how do you create a cohesive business operational model that brings value by using adequate technology. You're not leveraging technology from a perspective of, hey, we have to go innovate. Instead, you're approaching this from business value and systematically creating the digital uh, transformation exercise at every level. Of course, we have to culturally shift the organization, the DevOps thinking, and all of that cycle had to go through. In one of our upcoming episodes, we will unpack this a little bit more in detail, but the supply chain perspective actually was an interesting conversation, Cedric. As we went through this exercise of understanding how the business operates, one of the key observations from a risk management perspective was around the weakness in our global supply chain, how easy it is for someone to infiltrate the supply chain model. Um, in, in my opinion, speaking about e-Estonia, digital privacy, and of course the broader digital transformation topic, something that really stands out to me is the You know, I would agree with that, you know, from an intelligence perspective, when you look at the supply chain, you well, first of all, you know, whether you're doing counterintelligence, which really means protecting yourself from others, or you're conducting intelligence where you're gathering information about people outside of your organization, uh, you always have to look for the weakest link. And the thing that um, interested me as well as, as Vijay uh, is the fact that, uh, you know, the, the supply chain really is uh, one of the weakest links. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you have, um, you know, you have a situation where you, you've got, uh, you got to do business, right? And, uh, you know, as Vijay knows so well, you know, you, you got to do business, you got to make it, uh, make it work, you got to meet your, uh, you know, your return on investment, you got to make a profit, you got to do all of those things. And you can certainly do that. Digital transformation gives you that possibility. Uh, but the kinds of things that we're looking at here become really, really, really important uh, because the way in which the supply chain is set up, it's not built with security in mind, at least wasn't built that way at first. And it does have a lot of those vulnerabilities that, uh, that UVJ mentioned.
mentioned in in uh, what you were talking about there you know nation states can exploit a lot of what's going on with the supply chain uh, particularly you know when it comes to the tariff wars for example uh, you know you've got uh, that supply side weakness if you will uh, that could be uh, could be exploited in that way do you think that uh, you know the economic impact of some exploitation in the supply chain like that could be profound at all absolutely cedric if you look up look at the the tariffs that we are all experiencing from two of the large economic superpowers. Uh, a, a recent example that comes to my mind is there's an open source, the open source community is very vibrant. A, a much of innovation in technology and cybersecurity is purely due to the open source community. And it's unfortunate that open source communities are products, you know, products that you mm -hmm. develop at GitHub, uh, the collaborative version control system where you post your code, it's coming under scrutiny and attacked by these nefarious actors. And here is here is what's happening. There are enough products in the supply chain market, you know, there's some 9,000 plus cybersecurity vendors, risk management vendors here. But the question is, the attackers are always shifting left into the market. So what that means is uh, instead of attacking the final product and the data, they are now infiltrating the supply chain. To your point, Cedric, it's a perfect analysis and, and comparison to the public sector. What if you see bad code right during the creation of the product and leave it as a stealth backdoor? So by the time it gets implemented at a large corporation, the backdoor is still active because these codes are not well tested. Case in point, you need application security review, DevOps security review. But what happens is this backdoor has been making its way into larger corporations and these highly organized nation state actors, possibly hackers, criminal rings are leveraging those backdoors. So as time passes, Cedric, the, the way we are protecting and guarding our digital assets, the organized crime, the nation states have systematically expanded their attack capabilities. I mean, we have had this discussion in the past. The next war is a bloodless war that's going to happen behind the scenes in Absolutely. the digital and, realm. You know, when you think about this, I think the key point here, VJ, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong about this, but I think the key point here is that these kinds of attacks, it's a stealth war. And it's stealth because it becomes a war in which the types of hacks into the supply chain and into the open source code that you've that we've been talking about here uh, are so critical because they are almost impossible to detect. Exactly, Cedric. It's it's uh, while there are technologies that exist, this comes to our what I call as the the fifth domain of cybersecurity, which is basically practice practice and hygiene. Uh, there is so much momentum and innovation in the code world, in the product lifecycle world. There isn't enough hygiene enforced by some of these companies to check their code to institute a proper governance for cybersecurity. And not only that, the complexity of the attacks are also so well thought out, so well detailed. We may come to a point, Cedric, where it may not be easy for us to detect some of these issues. We are already experiencing that. But what's happening is, how do you even navigate 
some of these problems? And the short answer that, that literally jumps at us is, can we train artificial intelligence in order to go ahead and go detect these problems. There are solutions that are beginning to shape up in, in one of our upcoming episodes. We'll talk about certain solutions and where we are in artificial intelligence. But uh, right now, Cedric, you're absolutely right. Some of these problems are only detected after you see the the impact of the attack, especially at the nation state level, you're going to see some challenges if the if the organized crime, if the organized attacks are well orchestrated, and it's a dichotomy. It's a huge problem between what happens to the open source world because open source is a is a bloodline. It's the heartbeat of innovation. You can't stifle that, but at the same time, you cannot be so naive about the cybersecurity attack plots. So this goes back to our digital democracy discussion, the governance around how do you navigate some Absolutely. of these Absolutely, and the governance becomes so important. And, you know, you, you Vijay, you present a, a really interesting piece here because AI is, in essence, the future of, of everything that we that we have. And one of the key elements here is the fact that when you look at artificial intelligence is the fact that so many of the powers of the world are looking at AI as being the end-all and be-all for their particular uh, economic and political salvation. We have China, and on the one hand, you have Russia. Both of them are working together for certain aspects of things. And the key thing that I want to leave people with on this is something that Vladimir Putin said about a year, a little over a year ago. And he said, what the one who controls, the nation who controls artificial intelligence is going to rule the world. And he said that to an audience of Russian high school students, Russian high school students who were studying technologies and who basically are that nation's future in the AI realm. So that becomes the critical thing. They are thinking that artificial intelligence is going to enable them to control everything on this planet. And we have to tell them uh, that you don't get the only vote in this area. And that's the last word for this weekend edition of Elevate Intel. Signing off, VJ Viswanathan. For Elevate Intel, I'm Cedric Layton.